You know that feeling when you wake up from a soaring dream and still remember how to fly? Or when you've been searching for your glasses all day just to find them on your head? Or how about that feeling when you wing it in the kitchen and it turns out you're a god? That Feeling One Oracle Deck is a 44-card deck full of familiar feelings ready to guide you in your everyday life. And they're all designed by me, your Behold Her host, Lisa Penrose. That Feeling When is currently kickstarting and just fully funded, so head to bit.ly slash tfworacle to snag yours before September and the campaign ends. Welcome back, Behold Her listeners. As astute readers might have noted from this episode's title, episode 21 is the penultimate episode of Behold Her. All things must end. I wanted to wrap up this passion project of mine while I still loved it dearly, and recently I felt Behold Her has accomplished what it set out to do, to weave a vivid tapestry of the many different facets of the femme gamer experience. This, quote, experience is as diverse as we are as individuals. There are infinite more stories to tell, so I hope even as Behold Her wraps up next episode, you'll keep your eyes, ears, and mind open to receiving those stories. But let's chat about this episode. For those who missed Penwich Studios' Podjam 2021 event, our podcast network threw a fundraiser for The Trevor Project while streaming and recording awesome resources for new and aspiring geeky podcasters. Most of the VODs are available on the Venture Maidens YouTube channel. Behold Her got to record a live episode with Rachel and Teresa McElroy of the McElroy family. Whoa. Enjoy that conversation in podcast form momentarily. Then, Banana Chan, an amazing game designer you might recognize from our Femmes Who Kickstart episode, returns to tell us about their latest upcoming Kickstarter of suburban horror RPGs. Teresa, Rachel, I would love for folks who are unfamiliar with you to first introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your podcast, your elevator pitch. And we'll start with Teresa. Okay, so I'm Teresa McElroy. I am married to the middlest brother, Travis McElroy. And I actually have a background in musical theater. And so I guess I've been performing my whole life at this point. And I think that these days, if you're a McElroy, you have a podcast. (laughs) So I think the way that I got into it was... Was I the last one to start or did Wonderful start after us? Yeah. Okay. So Travis has always had more podcasts than he can count coming in and out and in and out. And I actually got introduced to podcasts by Travis. They started Taz pretty much right after we got together. And we spent a long time trying to find a good fit for us. And finally settled on a kind of infotainment genre of etiquette and manners. And I mean, we like to say that it's not like which knife and fork to use etiquette. It's more like a step-by-step kind of guide of how to navigate the world mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, and Schmanners was born. I played the straight man, the teacher, <laughs> and, and Travis is the goofball. As usual. 
I feel like there's one episode that's particularly relevant to a lot of the folks listening. There's one about how to do art commissions, mm-hmm. um, as yeah, well we as sort of that one. yeah, as well as like a history of art commissions. But yeah, that one's great in education for sure. Rachel, what about you? Hi. Uh, so Griffin is my husband. Uh, he is the youngest of the McElroys, and we started our podcasting together with a show called Rose Buddies, which was just kind of a bachelor slash reality dating show recap podcast. And I kind of thought about it in the context of Sydney and Teresa, who were both doing these podcasts where they were talking about topics they had some expertise. <laughs> and I thought, well, what do I know a lot about? <laughs> And at the time, I was like, I have watched a lot of seasons of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. So we started doing that show. And then it just became less and less fun to talk about just kind of as we realized all the problematic aspects of those podcasts and just reality dating shows in general. And we realized what we really like doing and what, you know, I think our listeners really enjoy is when we talk about things we're excited about. So we shifted and now we do wonderful which every week we talk about topics, uh, music, movies, books, just particular pieces of nostalgia and, and that, you know, excite us. And hopefully our listeners, you know, can learn something new or find out about something they didn't know about before. My favorite uh, episode includes the wombat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, love that one. Kind of a seminal, seminal, wonderful episode. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, that, that kind of speaks to just our, our level of interest week to week and how we kind of shift topics. I think part of the reason that I was drawn to Griffin was his just kind of general enthusiasm for things. And it is not something that comes naturally to me always. I tend to be more of kind of like a skeptic kind of practical and so it's hard for me sometimes to just let go and say you know what I really love like goldfish crackers Uh, but but Griffin kind of brings that out in me and I feel like that's kind of the energy of our show oh what a pick-me-up of a podcast (laughs) it sounds like so you both touched on this a little bit but in case there's anything you wanted to expand on I was wondering like where your love of podcasts comes from sounds like it comes with the territory of being a McElroy Um, was it something you were interested in beforehand or what were your your thoughts on podcasts before you started podcasting? Were they just like a thing that your husband or partner did? I'm curious. I really didn't know anything about it. I was familiar with audiobooks and just figured that it was kind of like internet radio that people published weekly or or whatever. I really wasn't aware of just the breadth of topics that were available and how you could really almost develop, you know, this little friend in your ear to be with you while you, I don't know, I would be, I did a couple of, um, I did a year or so of dog walking in LA. And so I always just had one on and it was nice to not feel so, you know, just alone in the neighborhood. Yeah, I think I, I had been listening to podcasts before we did one. Actually, it's it's interesting. Griffin and I have a mutual friend. And before I even met Griffin, our mutual friend was like, oh, you should listen to this podcast. My friend does. Call my brother, my brother and me. 
And so before I met Griffin, I'd actually listened to some episodes of that. And then after I met him, I listened to the whole, <laughs> the whole back catalog. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that and, and, you know, This American Life, of course, you know, a lot of the the really early kind of trailblazers that, you know, may have started out as radio shows, for example, and then kind of moved into more of the, the podcast space. And I don't know, I, I think like Teresa, it's just nice to have company when you're doing something else. When I was working at a previous jobs, I did a lot in spreadsheets. And it was just nice to like have something to listen to it made the time go faster and made me kind of enjoy my day more. What I love about podcasts, and it's especially it's depending on the genre of podcast you pick. It's just like listening to a conversation with friends in the room, Mm -hmm. basically. Great for keeping you company while you multitask, especially. Mm -hmm. So then how did you go from listening to these podcasts to creating your own podcast? Teresa, you touched on it a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can get like real specific about how your current podcast came to be. Well, I think that we really took our time with it. Um, you know, Sawbones had been going for a very long time, which is Justin and Sydney's medical podcast. Uh, I mean, medical comedy (laughs) (laughs) podcast. And I love their show. I have listened from day one and we kept kind of circling around what should we do? What would we talk about? And it really took a lot of trial and error not not that we recorded a bunch of things that that we had to delete and <laughs> never do, but more like, oh, should we talk about this? Should we talk about that? Should we do TV? Should we do? It just took a long time to figure out what is something that we can talk to each other about every week for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. and have a great time doing. And we finally settled on the same sort of infotainment that I love, the the podcast, the Sawbones style, with the things that I love to do. I love letter writing and I love like vintage clothes and I love weird Victorian documentaries and <laughs> and things like that. And Travis is really great at going along for the ride. So when we would go on vacation, we would visit like historical things and just really have a fun time, almost like learning together. <laughs> it, it seems very, very niche, very nerdy, but I think that it really is something. There's a reason why the History Channel and these different documentaries on music and history and the wars and all this kind of stuff. There's a reason why people make that and we love to learn. So that's really how it came about. But we had to decide that this was something we could talk about, like I said, every week for the foreseeable future. And this is what we settled on. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great tip as well for folks in the chat who are aspiring to be podcasters and kind of trying to figure out what exactly their their niche will be. It has to have longevity if you want the project to have longevity. If this is a short term thing and you're okay with that, I suppose that uh, that's a different thing. I'm curious, do any ideas come to mind where you or Travis pitched it and one of you thought, oh, this would be great that, that you ended up not pursuing? There are a lot of biographical episodes that we kind of 
toss out. And the thing is, looking backward on people in their time and what they did is is a very kind of like sensitive thing because as we learn and grow as humans we change and society changes so there are a bunch of people who at the time were like you know victorian influencers or whatever that we just don't find anything other than the fact that they influenced culture to be really relevant for today. And so a lot of those biographies, we just can't seem to find a good common ground on. So Mm -hmm. those stay in the idea bin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rachel, what about you? How did wonderful, I mean, you gave us a little bit of the overview, but how did it come to be? Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't know that I ever would have thought of it if I hadn't kind of married into the family. I'm not a performer. I'm not kind of a stage person. I mean, I like to be funny and I like to be entertaining, but I never really saw myself kind of trying to get attention that way. But I think what's nice about doing the show with somebody that you trust and that you have chemistry with and that has, you know, maybe a little more showmanship than you do is it's it's not stressful. You know, the kind of the stage fright thing that that would get me otherwise doesn't in this case, because I know like if there is any slack, you know, my my partner will pick it up. So I don't feel that pressure to like, you know, bring in all the laughs. And and I will say too, trying to figure out kind of what what you can bring, you know, that maybe other people aren't saying or, or something unique, you know, I, what, one thing that really took off for me that was kind of a surprise is, you know, my background, I, I majored in English literature and then specifically in creative writing was my emphasis. And then I went to graduate school and studied English literature again, got a master's in humanities and focused a lot on poetry. And it just started happening that, week to week, I would talk about a different poet or poem, thinking like, I don't know, this is probably something that people aren't running into anywhere else. And it is something that I feel strongly about and that I have some background in. And people really enjoyed it, I think largely because they weren't getting it anywhere else. And my enthusiasm for it kind of caught on. And, and it made me realize like, oh, you have to find the things that you care about that maybe people wouldn't find Otherwise, you know, like, why, why are you the right person to be talking about this? You know, I think a lot of times, for example, when we were doing The Bachelor and Bachelorette, we thought like, oh, we have funny things to say. And a lot of people watch the show. But ultimately, I don't think we were the right people to be doing that podcast, because I think after a while, it just started to feel like work. And I think we realized like, oh, you know what, like, what we really have is, is enthusiasm for a lot of the same things. But this is not one of them anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so it was nice to be able to pivot and the Max Fun Network was really generous in letting us do that. Well, that makes me very happy that you found yourself into a podcast where you can genuinely just be very excited and passionate about what you're genuinely excited and passionate about and how much that that shines and resonates for people. I'll also call out both of you mentioned host dynamics, which I think is, I guess, another uh, tip or something to consider uh, for folks looking to get in, into podcasting. Having a partner to do that with, I think, is lovely both for yourself uh, and often for listeners because you 
of someone to play off of. And your personalities and what you naturally bring to the microphone are going to play off of each other as well. Uh, So I'm really glad that you both brought that up. So my next question is, as you were going into these, at the time, new podcast ventures, did you have expectations of what hosting or producing a podcast would be like? I guess for me, I didn't know the first, like, I still don't know a single thing about producing a podcast. I am basically just a performer and I hand it to Travis. And also, we also now are so fortunate that we are able to employ people to also help with things like editing and posting and and recording. And when we do, when we had done touring, we had a, a, a tour manager and all that stuff. So I had never even thought about that side of it. I was like, okay, we put it in the computer. It's done. <laughs> But I guess as far as hosting goes, I would have to say, okay, this is this is what I mean. So when you are podcasting together, just the two of you in the room, I think that that has a a certain type of intimacy that you are like the audience is a third person. Right. So you want to try and talk to each other while including the audience. But when you have have a live show, I think that the audience is less included almost. They're there and you can certainly feed off like laughs and stuff, but the, the intimacy is gone, I think. And so that would be the two parts of post hosting that I didn't really expect to be so different. Travis and I have changed our setup over the years and we used to actually look at each other while we were talking, like facing each other across a table. And it just became too like insular. We were not able to like complete our thoughts because we know each other so well. So we were, there was like the understood, the implied finish of a thought. Whereas if we were we finally now have come to where we always sit next to each other. Um, we can definitely turn to talk, right? Turn to each other like that. But we do it more so that we think a little more about the third person, the audience. What an interesting, like a small change, but it sounds like it's really, really shifts how you feel as you're recording. I think that That also is kind of the style of the infotainment that we do Mm -hmm. because it it's not like you're listening in on our conversation. It's more like we are all talking about this thing together. Mm -hmm. That's a great tip. Uh, Rachel, what about you? So one thing that has been really nice is we have always had a really active community and we we took a lot of our community from Rose Buddies kind of along with us. And so there's, there's a Facebook group and a lot of times it sparks a lot of conversation. You know, we'll talk about a particular thing from our childhood and everybody will get excited and start talking about it in the Facebook group. And so that has helped me really think about the audience. I also, for a living, I'm a grant writer for a community college. And so it's not unusual for me to think about the audience for what I'm writing. So I found myself a lot of times thinking like, okay, 
is this interesting to me? Is it going to be interesting to somebody who's listening? Is it funny? You know, like as it, you know, it, it's it's hard sometimes when you're trying to be informative and funny because a lot of times you'll forget about one or the other <laughs> while you're doing it. And so for me, I just I like I always have to think about funny because I know when we first started doing the show. I would have my notes and I would feel so beholden to my notes. And I felt like I'm going to get through this and they're not going to know what year this guy died. (laughs) And then it was like, oh, nobody cares. Like nobody, (laughs) nobody really cares. And I was always surprised at the end of an episode when people wouldn't be like, well, actually, like, because the people that listen to our show listen because they're just enjoying our dynamic and maybe they're learning about something that they're going to look into more after the episode, but they're not listening, you know, like it's like it's NPR, you know, like they're listening, like it's a comedy show on a network that has a lot of comedy shows and, you know, they're just enjoying our dynamic. So, so that was something about hosting. I really had to remind myself, like, listen, to what Griffin is saying, because sometimes he is making a joke. <laughs> and it is appropriate for you to add to or respond to that joke. And also nobody really cares, like if you get all the important dates or, you know, like the names of all their children or where they were born or, you know, it, it's more about being excited and like collaborating with your co-host. Yeah, that's so you brought up something that I'm curious about with both of you. So what do your notes or preparation look like as you're getting ready for an episode? Do you you mentioned you're looking for things that are both informative and funny. So is it like you have a fact and do you have to note that like do you write your jokes ahead of time or uh, what is your process? I mean, I think a lot about timing. So I think about how long our episode is and whether or not the amount of information I have is going to make an episode. You know, I think we started doing a segment at the beginning called Small Wonders, which is just just kind of a one shot. Like, here's a thing that I like this week that we know isn't really enough for a whole episode because there's just not enough rich history or interaction or information available. But when we decide on a topic, we'll both kind of look and make sure there's like, you know, there's, there's something happening around it that creates a story. It's appropriate for us to be talking about it. Cause a lot of times you'll think like, Oh, this is great. And then you'll look up the context and you're like, Oh no, I should, I should never talk about that. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Griffin's been really, really good. Like that, that's the other thing that's nice about having somebody that, has the expertise is a lot of times I'll sit down and I'll be like, should I do this? And he's like, you're asking that question. And that kind of is your answer right there. (laughs) And the answer is no, because, you know, I think when your job is to like entertain people and and to be enthusiastic, you know, you don't want to talk about something that uh, is going to bum people out for a variety of reasons. So yeah, usually I'll look, sometimes it's just like one really good article. You know, if I have a topic and I find a really good story on like a a news site about it, that's enough. Sometimes I have to go to multiple sources to find enough pieces to put together a whole segment. 
sometimes I will find something that I think I could maybe talk about this and then I read it and I realize I do not have the background or the expertise necessary, you know, like sometimes like really interested in like parts of the human body and it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great to talk about how the tongue works? And then I'm like, no, I can't pronounce half of these words. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, so it's, it's just kind of finding that right balance of like, does this kind of fit within the parameters of our podcast and is there enough there to talk about and is it going to be like entertaining or is it gonna be really dry and should I maybe not do a whole episode about it Teresa what about prep for you so I am very fortunate that I have a research assistant Um, we go through topics together that are usually listener submitted at this point. Everybody has been really great about, you know, sending in things that they would be interested in. We go through topics and I have my favorite kind of like online etiquette blogs to check. And when it comes to things that are like wearing white after Labor Day, like silly things like that. There is a lot of like actual book resources that I, I own. I have several editions of Emily Post's books and Miss Manners books. And you can always look through um, uh, Dear Abby and Miss Manners. They both have like syndicated columns. So it's pretty easy to find their answer. Uh, if you're looking for something, especially witty, I recommend uh, Miss Manners. But we tend to do a kind of chronological approach. A lot of the things we talk about are culturally related. They have tradition and roots and, you know, why we do the things that we do today or why we don't do that thing anymore is really historical. And so it feels like a running gag at this point. We start with the ancient Egyptians and we move on to the Greeks and Romans, and then we go into the medieval period and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So chronologically really helps me organize my thoughts around the subjects. Alex is really great about building a chronological narrative with me. And then really, I have to say that a lot of the stuff that we'll do, like our like tips and tricks or whatever, what podcast like etiquette do's and don'ts, a lot of them come directly from the Emily Post Institute. And a lot of them, I mean, we've even used things like BuzzFeed articles that have just, they have a way of working, working through like how the, the current culture views specific like manners and traditions. And then Travis and I talk a lot about our own experience, usually at the end of the podcast where we take um, listener submitted questions on the topic. And, you know, as we've gone further and further through, I find that there's a lot less, especially with Travis and I giving our, putting our two cents on top, there's a lot less of this is exactly the way you should do it. Here are the steps. And more like everybody's just trying to figure this thing out as they go. And I think a really great example is all of our wedding etiquette episodes we're like, there are so many wedding traditions and sure they're traditions. Lots of people have done them, but just because people did them doesn't mean you have to do them. And that, that seems to be a kind of recurring theme these days where we just talk about 
well, this is what everybody's done, but do we really have to do it that way? As long as we are, you know, kind to each other. And as we keep these other kind of like social, like moral statutes in mind, why do we have to do it like that? And the answer is we don't. Mm -hmm. It sounds like both of you over the course of these podcasts or previous ones like Rose Buddies have really grown as hosts. Um, So I'm curious, what tips do you have for folks on being a vibrant host or developing your own host style? I mentioned it earlier, but just really think about kind of what you're good at. You know, I think, and this is something you hear from creators all over the place, is that when you first start out, you're kind of trying to be like somebody that you like, you know, you're trying to be like something you've heard or you're, you're trying to follow a model that you think is successful. And then over time, you kind of figure out, oh, wait, what is my thing? And the sooner you can get there, I feel like the better. Because I feel like people are really quick to read, you know, any discomfort or insecurity you may have. And those moments where you're kind of being inauthentic, like, I don't know what it is, but it just like us as human beings, it's just like immediately you're just like, oh, well, this this person should not be doing this. Uh, and so I, I guess that would be kind of my biggest piece of advice is just like, you know, maybe it's talking to your friends or your family and saying like, you know, what what is one of your favorite stories that I tell or one of your favorite memories of me, like figuring out kind of what it is about you that people like and that, you know, where you really kind of shine and focusing on that. I think that it also has to do a lot with the partner that you choose. I mean, not everyone can podcast with their spouse, but I do think that it is important that you have some kind of rapport, that you have some history, you have it. it I, I think that before you you think about having a podcast, you need to think about having a relationship with the person. And I'm not, I mean, obviously romantic is not necessary, but just a familiarity with the person you're podcasting with so that you can trust them to make you look good. It helps that Travis and I both have theatrical backgrounds. And like one of the statutes of improv and theater is make your partner look good. So I think that we are on the same page that way. And it's really important that if you are going to podcast with a partner or or a group of people, that you all make sure you're on the same team. Is there anything else or any other lessons you've learned regarding hosting, regarding podcasting in general, as you've been working on these podcasts, sort of 101 tips you would want to share with aspiring podcasters in the audience? I would like to say that there is a little bit of a imposter syndrome that Mm. you really have to jump over. Because when we first started, I did a lot of couching of like, oh, I'm not an expert. I didn't go to school for this. I don't have a degree, that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is I do enough research. I live in the world. I have enough experiences and I genuinely enjoy what I talk about that I become an expert. I I don't have to tell people that I haven't been published or that this is just my experience. I trust the audience 
to think of me as somewhat an authority on something, but also I think they trust me now so that if something is factually incorrect, that they can say so and say, you know, you said this thing, but that's not quite true. And I think that a big tip is to try and not take that personally. But I do the research. I read about it. I am an expert on that for that moment. Rachel, any one-on-one tips from you? Uh, I mean, I feel like I've, I've kind of covered my biggest pieces of advice. You know, I, I would just remember, you know, that this is something that you're doing because you enjoy it. And if it gets to a point where you're not enjoying it anymore, like you just pivot or find find something that feels better. You know, I think at the time when we switched from Rose Buddies to Wonderful, I think we were nervous about it and we knew we were going to lose a lot of listeners. Uh, but we also knew that we were not happy doing that previous show anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and since then, it's been great. You know, like we always feel better recording and making the show, you know, than we did before. And, and that's a great place to be in. Let's chat a little bit about the communities around your podcasts. I'm curious, how do you engage with your communities and your fans? Uh, I know, Teresa, you mentioned uh, that you all get a lot of fan submissions for topics. Absolutely. We always ask for anything that people are interested in if they want to send it in. We also rely a lot on Twitter where we tell people ahead of time we're going to be doing a show on On dining etiquette, send in your dining etiquette questions and we'll see and we'll try and answer them. And I think that it's a little bit of a shortcut in a way of like, we need to talk about stuff people are interested in. Let's have them tell us what they're interested in. (laughs) But also it creates something that people want to come back to. Mm -hmm. They say, okay, well, I have submitted like six topics so far. None of them have gotten in, but maybe this next one will. And they keep listening for that. Same thing where, you know, when people tweet the questions for the shows, we say their Twitter handles and people feel like they're a part of the process. And that's really engaging for a lot of people. I feel like to have your favorite podcast Uh, notice you um, must feel really lovely. Uh, So I think that's a great way to engage with your community. Rachel, do anything to uh, interact with fans? Yeah, we so we do invite people to submit their own kind of wonderful things. Uh, We have an email address. And at the end of the show, we will sometimes read a a submission from a, a listener of just like, some very particular thing that they have appreciated, you know, whether it's just like crunchy leaves, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it can be very small. And honestly, it's easier if it Lovely. is very small. And then also our, our Facebook group, as I mentioned, uh, has become a really active community of people kind of lifting each other up and, and thinking of things that from the week or, you know, particular artists that they heard us mention on the show that they also like. And it's, it's become nice. A lot of people have said that in their Facebook feed to have, you know, updates from that group is nice because it's just like a little like chunk of something like, 
you know, cute or sweet or nostalgic that, that people are excited about at the time. I don't know. It's, it seems to, to really kind of keep people in high spirits during this kind of difficult time. I love the selfie <laughs> of the week thread that comes up from wonderful all the time. Yeah. Love it. yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's incredible. You know, it's never anything that we pushed, you know, we weren't really trying to engage people in that way. You know, the, the social media piece is not anything that we are driving. It is just kind of something that we have gained over time. Uh, and we just, you know, try and, and nurture it without being front and center. I think that's really lovely. And that it shows how the the concept for your podcast like really resonates with people that they get so genuinely excited about it that they want to create. I think that's wonderful. A green mer dragon has a related, uh, really great question, which is um, especially for podcasts where, like Teresa, you specifically mentioned, it can feel very intimate, right? Like, how do you manage parasocial relationships and fans who feel like they are a part of your lives? Has that ever come up for either of you? It does come up a little bit, and the way that I feel like I manage it personally is I have to think about, well, I also, as a, as a person, <laughs> have created parasocial relationships with people where, you know, I watch the same TV shows over and over because they feel like my friends. And, you know, you see an actor in a show where you're like, oh, it's that person, even if they're not playing that character. Or, I mean, this has happened with like Chris Evans, right, where he has portrayed Captain America so much throughout, you know, our young adult, middle adult lives <laughs> that he becomes associated with that character. But that's not that's not him. He's not the living Captain America. It's not real. But in our minds, they feel so close. And so I feel like remembering that myself lets me give people a lot of grace when they do the same thing. And I think that the, really the only thing that I can do is my best. And if it's not for someone else, they don't have to have it. And that's really where the disappointment happens, right? Because when someone tweets at you or or makes a comment on the Facebook group or whatever and says, this is bad, I hate it, you do a bad job, and I'm leaving, you just have to be like, okay, well, it's not for them, and that's not my fault. I'm going to keep doing what I do, and if people want to take it, it's there. And if they don't want to take it, they don't have to. That doesn't mean that I'm encouraging the anonymity of the internet to provide a mask for people mm -hmm. to be like, uh, you suck and you're terrible and I hope you fall off the planet because I don't believe in that either. But I really just try to think about my own parasocial relationships with Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> And try to, like I said, give give people a little bit of, of grace in that area. Rachel, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I will just say it's kind of we're, we're in kind of a unique situation because, you know, Griffin and Justin and Travis kind of got in the game really early. And so our listeners have really kind of grown along with us. We've had kids. 
you know, we've all moved to different places, you know, they, and we talk about that on the show, you know, we're, we're thoughtful about what we share about our children, but the, you know, it comes up. And so it, it, it is very natural, I think, for people to feel invested in what is happening with us because it is part of our shows, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. And so we just try to be thoughtful. We want to create a community that is welcoming but we are not looking for new siblings. <laughs> you know, we are not looking for new best friends. And and being thoughtful about, you know, we, of course we want to support people that enjoy the work and and engage with us and tell us how important it is to them. You know, of course that's a wonderful thing about doing the show and that's kind of why you get started in the first place. But remembering, I don't know, that that we we have to be thoughtful about our our own privacy and and our own time and and our own energy that we put out into the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, setting those boundaries, I mean, setting boundaries in general in life, really great advice. So what would be a favorite fan story, interacting with a fan in some way, either uh, through social media or at an event? Oh, gosh. I think that when we have been fortunate enough to be invited on the Joko cruise, that is really sort of like the best interaction that I've ever had with fans. Travis and I hosted an afternoon tea on the cruise ship. It was fantastic. It's it's a... um, uh, a service that the cruise ship offers anyway. They always offer, if you go to this certain room at the certain time, we will have tea, we'll have trays, you'll be able to have, you know, your little finger sandwiches and jam tarts or whatever. And we just turned it into an amazing, like, schmanners party. Everyone looked so beautiful. People got really into it. People, there were beautiful, like, modern outfits there were really great some like vintage or reproduction outfits there were some really great like even fanciful beautiful outfits so Uh, delightful it was it was wonderful and we really all had a really great time you know doing our best english tea time (laughs) kind of impersonations and it was so much fun that's probably like that's my favorite one where we were able to walk around and talk to people and just kind of like be the ultimate hosts of this grand tea party. It was fantastic. Oh, that sounds magical. Rachel, what would be your favorite fan moment? I was trying to think about this. This was years and years ago, back before Justin and Travis and Griffin started doing really large venues. We used to kind of hang around after the show and the guys would you know, sign things and take pictures and also before children. Yeah, true. true. (laughs) We did that for a little while when Charlie, uh, Sydney and Justin's oldest was a baby. And then I think we quickly realized like, because it, the venues got bigger, started to get later and it was just not a commitment that could be sustained. But I was, I was always surprised because at that point, Griffin and I had just started doing Rose Buddies. And honestly, it was just kind of delightful to have people recognize me and, and, and say how much they love the show, you know, because I really wasn't anticipating that. I, 
I always kind of, and this is, this speaks to the imposter syndrome that Teresa mentioned. I always kind of assumed people just wanted more Griffin and I was there kind of along for the ride. And I'm not saying that to, to be like self-deprecating. It was just kind of, I recognized that people really loved Griffin and here was another project that Griffin was doing. And, you know, obviously it brought a new dynamic to, you know, have his partner opposite him but I just kind of thought like oh people just want more Griffin Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they are getting that through this show and so just any time anyone has ever been like oh you know what you're my favorite part of the show I'm always like oh wow thank you like it still surprises me every time and I just that is honestly always like a real special thing for me Oh, that's really sweet. I've definitely seen folks who are like, well, I don't want to bother the person. I don't want to like go up and say something. But if you're like, if you're nice, especially if you recognize you only want to take a second of their time to say hi, Mm -hmm. the few times someone has come up to me at like a tabletop convention and said something, I'm just like, thank you for making me look so cool in front of my friends. Um, So that's really lovely. I'll ask uh, as my last, like a very behold her question, which is uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what has your experience been specifically as a femme in the podcasting space? As far as my experience goes, I really don't think that because podcasting is so like, just me and Travis and we're doing it and we put it out into the world that has been, I don't see any kind of like, I don't even think about it. Right. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to things like panels or shows at like cons or whatever, which Travis loves to do, I feel like it's kind of a, a lonely space at the moment. I've been on a couple of different panels where I've been the only person who was female presenting. And I'm not saying that anyone like treated me badly or anything like that. It's just something where you, I've had to make my space, Mm -hmm. had to kind of like claim the microphone for when I wanted it. And no one was really thinking about actively including me because I was quote included I'm here I'm sitting at the table but I had to actively like push through a little bit and I I think that that was something I wasn't exactly like surprised about but also I would love to see things like a space made for people like me Mm-hmm. instead of having to like take it <laughs> and that's even with with my like my privilege as like a young female white person there just needs to be more space made for people who don't fit like the typical white male gamer kind of mm-hmm. internet person yeah, right there with you. And I think the word you use that it's a it's a lonely space, I think is a really poignant one. I mean, it's lonely to be to feel like you're the one of anything uh, in a group mm-hmm. of people. Um, Rachel, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think Teresa really said it well. Uh, yeah, I will say the expectations are just a little different. You know, I think when I first started doing the show we got several comments from people that were like, I didn't expect Rachel to be funny. 
you know, like it was, it was interesting to just kind of get that, like, oh, what a, what a delightful surprise that is, which was kind of jarring for me and reminded me like in this creative space, like there are still a lot of stereotypes about, I don't know what men do, you know, and, and what everybody else does. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I, I think you just, you just have to work harder. You know, it's just like any other space, you know, you hear about this a lot, you know, it's just, you have to work harder and you have to earn it more. And it's very easy to kind of just take that for granted. Uh, I always really appreciate when people draw attention to that because I feel like you get so used to it at a certain point, you're just like, oh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to have to earn the respect. And then you have to be reminded like, but some people don't have to do that. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, that would be nice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Any words of advice to um, aspiring podcasters who might, uh, who are femme uh, in the audience for getting into podcasting? I think my advice would be because in, in our society, Femme is often synonymous with smaller, with quieter, with, you know, delicate. I would say that it it doesn't have to be. And you don't have to put those on if that's not you. And in fact, you may want to like explore other qualities of your of your femme self. Because femme can also be strong, can also be loud, can also be, you know, whatever we want it to be. And those are voices that we want to hear, too. Absolutely. Being unapologetically yourself. Anything to add, Rachel? No, that was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that lovely note, I hope that some folks in the chat got some uh, encouragement if that was needed. But we're going to wrap up this interview. Um, We'll go in backwards order. If folks can do some outros, uh, let folks know where they can find you, plug your podcasts again if you'd like. We'll start with Rachel. Well, yeah, the podcast is wonderful. It is on the Max Fun Network, but you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Uh, comes out typically on Wednesday each week. And I am on Twitter. Uh, I, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think my Twitter username is Rachel C. McElroy. Uh, I've typed it so many times this week. That's what it is. Okay, <laughs> you can see how often I do I promote that I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that would probably be where I am most active. I'm not on TikTok. Uh, and I post on Instagram approximately once every four months. So yeah, <laughs> Twitter would probably be the way to go. Teresa. I'm going to say, let's see, you should, everyone should check out McElroy.family. All of our shows are linked on there. There's tons of like merch and announcements. And I mean, we have a YouTube video channel and and all that stuff available there at uh, McElroy.family. Um, you can submit a topic for Schmanners if you email schmannerscast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at schmannerscast. Uh, again, I I never tweet. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I think my handle is Teresa McElroy at uh at Teresa McElroy. Um, but Schmanner's cast is really where we do all of our, 
our stuff on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group. I have nothing to do with it, but there are lots of wonderful people out there in uh, in the Facebook world giving and getting excellent advice from other Schmanners fans. That's Schmanners Fanners on Facebook. <laughs> Amazing. I think that's that's all of my plugs. Right. If you're enjoying this episode, we have Multiverse to thank for sponsoring the editing by Rudy Basso and helping to make sure I sound as smart and charismatic as my wonderful guests. Multiverse is an online video game platform making it as easy as possible to make, play, stream, and share tabletop role-playing games with a creator-focused marketplace. I love how intuitive Multiverse is, but also Multiverse is a diverse and multicultural team building a modern, easy-to-use gaming platform that combines the best of video games and TTRPGs into one amazing experience. They also foster an inclusive and welcoming community for gaming newcomers and experienced hobbyists alike. I'm so thrilled to have this team support for Behold Her. Thank you, Multiverse. Banana Chan is a prolific game designer and friend of Behold Her, who's returned to the show to tell us about suburban consumption of the monstrous, kickstarting in October. Content warning. These games feature some adult and disturbing themes like cannibalism. Listen with the lights on. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Behold Her. Thanks for listening. We are here with the amazing, prolific Banana Chan. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on again. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you. I mean, as we were just saying in our sort of pre-recording chat, I felt like it was yesterday that I had you on Behold Her podcast to talk about your super cool like Chinese Chinatown restaurant vampire game. But I went to go check which episode it was, and that was episode 15, Femmes Who Kickstart. You might recognize Banana from there, if not the many other games and creations they work on. And that was in August 2020, (laughs) over a year ago. Wow. I cannot believe. I mean, like, it's probably the pandemic, right? (laughs) Time flies slash has no meaning when Panini, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Panini is just messing everything up right now. I feel like we did like a wrinkle in time where we folded the year and we just hopped over to this interview immediately after wrapping the last one. Well, I guess... Usually, I start these interviews asking folks about what your background in gaming is, what your origin story is, but we've done all that. So go back and listen to episode 15, Femmes Who Kickstart. It's a great episode if you want all that info. But I guess, Banana, it's been a year. I feel like you've been all over my timeline with announcement (laughs) after announcement. So give us a quick catch up. What are a few of the most awesome projects you've been working on? Oh my gosh. Okay. So um, 2020 has been a little busy. So my most recent work has been on the new Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So I think that got released sometime. I don't even know when now. It's been a while. I think Uh, at the end of our last interview, you alluded to some sort of really big announcement. And I think that was it. (laughs) That was the big announcement. Oh, well, yes, that was exactly how I planned it. (laughs) 
So yeah, that was uh, the exciting thing for me, I think, for the beginning of this year, uh, sometime last year. I also worked on Dune, the RPG, um, a little bit. And my upcoming projects for this year are this game that we're going to be talking about, which is, or anthology we're going to be talking about, which is Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous, that I'm working on with Sadia Bees, who has been incredible to work with. And I also have a couple other projects. I don't have to talk about them if we're like focusing on suburban consumption. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before we're going to talk a whole bunch about suburban consumption of the monstrous because it looks very cool, very creepy. But in that year, you've worked on so many other projects since we last spoke. I'm curious, how do you feel you've grown as a game designer in that time? I think that I have definitely gotten a lot better with scheduling. Um, and by scheduling, I mean, uh, figuring out when I need to take breaks and having like a morning routine, having like a routine down has been really helpful. And I think like overall growth in that aspect, right? So it helps mm-hmm. with my mental growth. It helps with like, you know, my, my physical growth as well. Like, you know, trying to make sure that like, I don't go overboard on projects and learning to say no has been very vital to this. Oh my gosh. Everyone goes through that phase of yes to everything because you sort of have like a FOMO or a fear that people, if you start saying no, people will never ask you to do something ever again, which isn't true. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like that just fear of like, oh no, they're probably going to hate me if I say no. Or like, if I say no, then I might miss out on a cool opportunity or something like that. But like, honestly, it's been great because Now, instead of just being like, no, I can't do this thing, I would say, hey, I can't do this thing, but I also have a lot of friends who are looking for writing gigs or video gigs or, you know, whatever else they're they're interested in. So, like, maybe I could refer you to someone else. Which is its own sort of very rewarding thing to do when you get to connect your friends or other creators you admire to opportunities. That actually makes my heart grow every opportunity I get to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's so good. And it definitely helps the community a lot as well. Any particular actionable tips on a lot of the life balancing you've been learning? For example, on a recent panel I moderated, a creator said at the start, they look at what their word count has to be. They divide it by weeks and then four days a week building in breaks and see how many words a day they have to complete with those built in three days off a week if they are doing like a big adventure with a huge word count. That's actually very similar to the way I work as well. Um, Yeah. So um, for me, because I'm working on so many different projects at a time, it's helpful to take those projects and break them down into smaller sizable chunks so that that way I can like work on each portion for the week. So for example, I have like three projects I'm working on currently, but Obviously, not all three of them are going to get done within the week. So what I would do is I would look at, oh, okay, project A probably needs one type of setting done. Okay, this setting has how many words? I'll try and do this for Monday or something like that. And then for project B, maybe it's just development. Maybe I have to go through, check all the development notes and like make sure that that gets done. Okay, maybe I could you know, just bang that out for like this week. And I would just like focus on that this week. And then 
project C, maybe, you know, it's a little bit of editing or fleshing some stuff out. Okay, I'll just like book that in my in like the last few days of the week. So it's a lot of trying to get things and break them down and then just like portioning them out <laughs> into different days while still maintaining like a normal like a like a schedule so that you know you have your breaks in the mornings you have your you t- you time your me time mm-hmm. in the mornings and then making sure that you don't overwork yourself or like you know go over i don't know like 50 60 70 hours a week doing this kind of stuff Oh, absolutely. I mean, that seems so crucial, breaking things down into like little mini chunks, little mini goals, Mm -hmm. which seem it's a lot easier to tackle, say, like a thousand words or something rather than, say, a 20,000 word project all at once. Yeah, definitely. And also having like templates. So if you're starting from scratch, if you have like a uh, this big idea and uh, you've talked to some co-creators about it, you have, you know, some sort of brainstorming notes session and you have like, you know, all these brainstorm notes down, taking those notes and sort of translating them into like a template is really helpful. So that that way you can see, oh, this goes here, this goes there, and then I can start focusing on this section or that section. Oh my gosh. Wait, what do you mean by template? Is that like an outline or um, yes. or like headers or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, like an outline. So I usually use, I, I made my own sort of template for RPGs like a while ago, just so that, you know, I can get everything into the template. And obviously, like the template's going to change over time, like, you know, not every game book is going to look the same. But with the template, it would have, like, say, for example, the beginning would have uh, the introduction, and then you would have mechanics, like a section for mechanics, and then like a section for like, calibration or safety, uh, depending on, you know, which word you prefer to use. And then a section for like the settings or the world and all that kind of stuff. So having it sectioned out like that is really helpful for me to just think things through. Yeah. I mean, I, on my side, I do mostly adventure design. And so I similarly find if I break things up into sections and like actually start naming the headers and everything, it helps my brain separate those little chunks and mini goals and think about them separately and also be able to kind of flit about to different sections depending on where your inspiration is. So I love hearing about how you have like a similar template for overall game design with mechanics and whole games like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love working in, this is going to sound so nerdy, but I love working Please, in, nerd out. I, I love, like, pro- productivity tools and stuff like that. So, like, having a Kanban board and, like, working in, like, a weird, it's not actually working agile, but it's, like, a, I would say it's, like, a form of working agile. It's, like, taking agile, like, concepts and trying to work in sprints. So like working in like two week periods, trying to complete like specific goals within those two weeks before moving on to the next thing. That's basically how every project has been like for me lately. Wait, what were the, is Agile like a app or thing or a system? Oh gosh, it's so nerdy. Okay. So like a lot of. (laughs) This is now a productivity podcast. (laughs) So like a lot of tech companies right now, they say that they're working quote unquote agile, like most tech companies work that way. But like a lot of um, corporate offices are starting to use the word agile in their working, but it's not actually agile. It takes like agile concepts like, you know, 
working on a big thing and chopping it down into smaller bite-sized pieces so you can work easier. Like that's, those are the concepts. And that's why I'm saying, yeah, that's why I would say like, you know, the way that I work is more like a bastardization of agile versus like actually what it means. Well, I hope that the creators listening to this podcast are taking notes so they can dive deep into that later, especially if you're (laughs) figuring out a creative system for yourself. But we've talked a little bit about all the many things you've worked on in the past year and also how you've managed to work on them and grow. So let's talk about what brought you here today. So you were originally on Femmes Who Kickstart. You are working on yet another Kickstarter, Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous, which if folks haven't seen the Kickstarter page or the promotion tweets, I want to describe this image. There's like a foggy, misty town and a floating dining table above it with this like tooth and this oozing like blood and viscera over the side. Very spooky and evocative. Give me the sort of elevator pitch. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about suburban consumption? Yeah, absolutely. So that image is actually by Sadia. They did all the art direction and all the artwork, or not all of the artwork, but most of the art stuff that oh, it's we so already good. Have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're incredible. They're a really, really good artist. Basically, Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous is an anthology of live-action role-playing games, uh, free-form American LARPs by Sadia and I, and they are all set around a suburban environment or a dinner table. So they have horror elements. It's a lot more R-rated than uh, Jiangshu, of course. And uh, it does have like some adult themes. So some themes that might come up are cannibalism or, you know, sexually mature themes, things like that. So uh, it's definitely like a departure from what I've worked on in the past in terms of, you know, things are a little lighter. This is definitely a lot less light and it is a lot creepier and scarier and it's definitely for adults. (laughs) Yeah, so I suppose I'll put this in our introduction too, but I suppose potential content warning as we dive a little deeper into this. So with our interview about Jiangshu, we talked about how your personal life experience informed the game a lot. I'm scared to talk about how this (laughs) game came about. Yeah, so the collection itself has, I believe, 14 games some of which are very much, you know, (laughs) they're like familial issue games uh, where, you know, you're dealing with a, a, an awkward family dinner and you're also cannibals, like that kind (laughs) of thing. It's like very strange and very uh, just very out there stuff. And then you also have games that have like one of the games that we have features the end of the world and it's Y2K and it's like the eve of Y2K and things are about to, you know, maybe end or maybe not. And you have the decision of telling everyone your baggage or maybe just holding it, keeping it for yourself. What sparked this creepy, weird, a little bit surreal game like where did you all start with one particular live action rpg idea did it start as a collaboration what sent you to in this direction 
So I think for this entire anthology, it's largely inspired by movies. So when I first had the idea of trying to like come up with, you know, a series of games for that are based around the movies I love. So the movies were The Invitation, Coherence, Get Out. Like there's always this common thread of like creepy suburban area and like people who are not necessarily who they seem. And so that sort of made me write like a few of these games at first. And I was just like playing with the ideas. And then I met Sadia and I was like, hey, Sadia, like, I feel like we have a lot of similar interests and I feel like we should definitely connect and like do a thing. And luckily Sadia said yes. And they were just like, yes, absolutely into it. Let's do a thing. And so Sadia had also been toying around with like some ideas, similar ideas of weird suburbia and like creepy monstrous things lurking beneath. And so we got together and we started just writing some stuff out. And then we approached Pelgrane because we had seen their work with Honey and Hot Wax with uh, Sharon Biswas and Lucian Khan. And we were like, oh, they might be interested in publishing this weird thing that we have because they have published another weird thing that our friends did previously. And Honey and Hot Wax is like a, um, a collection of games that are erotic in nature. So we were like, maybe this would fit with their portfolio. Like they've also done like, you know, more traditional things like 13th Age and mm-hmm. Trello Cthulhu and everything else. But we were just like, let's let's try and take a chance and see what they say. And so we contacted Kat Tobin and she was just like, yes, absolutely into this idea. Let's do it. So now we have a Kickstarter. <laughs> and that's how it happened. <laughs> and that was that. Gosh, okay. I have so many questions that I want to ask all at once. I guess the first one that comes up as you were describing this and ideas that were drawing you and media you were consuming and then things that Sadia separately was doing before you decided to collaborate together. What is it about suburbia that makes us want to twist it? I actually live in a suburban neighborhood and I love it. So I lived in New York for maybe it's been like 10 or 11. It's, it was 10 or 11 years. And then I moved over to the suburbs and it's not what I expected, but at the same time it is, it's very creepy. It's like, everything looks the same. And you know, you always have your nosy neighbors who are trying to see what's going on with you. But I also grew up in the suburbs for a short period of time. So I think I lived in the suburbs for about, four years during high school. And that was just this weird moment of like, when you're a teenager, you don't really want to be in a place like that. You sort of just like, you know, want to go somewhere else or, Mm -hmm. you know, live in a city. It's not really like the ideal environment for, or at least at the time for me, it wasn't really the ideal uh, environment for me. But it's also because I went to boarding school, so it was really weird. Um, (laughs) And I think when I was living there, it was just it was just like so a lot of things were suppressed it felt like like just the environment yeah like a lot of energies were suppressed just like you know things weren't talked about but everyone knew about them and it was just like not something that you want to talk about like that's sort of the feeling that I got living there I went to a Protestant school so it was like this Protestant Protestant boarding school. And of course, people just would not, you know, address bigger problems, right? There would be like, you know, underlying issues, but no one wants to talk about them. And it's always just like, let's just 
brush it under, brush it under the rug, and uh, we'll just pretend everything is fine. So I think this anthology does play a lot with this weirdness, this like unsettling nature of we're all trying to keep up with the Joneses or something like that. And yet, you know, there's so much unresolved issues. Yeah. I mean, when so you started describing your living in suburbs now. And I also grew up in and currently live in the suburbs. And the first word you used was it was very creepy. And my reaction was, well, I don't know if I would I would say that. I remember being a kid and thinking, oh, the suburbs are so boring. I don't know if I would have said creepy. But then as you described it more, especially that word suppressed and the sameness of everything that definitely jumped out that everyone's trying to seem normal and perfect and the idea of what the suburbs are supposed to be but really we've all got demons and cults in our basements (laughs) yeah exactly and I think horror in general has always been really into the suburbs I think of Nightmare on Elm Street or what else like all the contemporary movies that you see today like you know like I was talking about earlier, The Invitation is a big one, Coherence, uh, Get Out for sure. Like those movies definitely, they're set in the suburbs. I think initially, in the very, very beginning, horror was interested in the suburbs because of, and this is like another content warning type of thing where it did talk a lot about, it was a reaction to redlining. So there was that and also this idea of like everything has to be perfect in this white neighborhood. So like, how could anything go wrong? So this is during a time of school shootings as well. So like the first school shooting happened, I think it was just like um, during Columbine. And so like, there was this horror of like, this kind of thing happens in our neighborhood, how could it happen? And so the idea of this horror manifesting, there largely like white ideals where it's like, oh, you know, how could anything bad happen here? But also like the horror is like, what if this bad thing happens in our neighborhood? And also what if it was the other that's approaching or encroaching into our neighborhood? So that's where like horror sort of horror in the suburbs sort of started. And then it's now evolved. And I think like, you know, from the 80s to like now, now it's evolved into this thing where it's like, oh, times have changed. (laughs) Uh, More people are moving out into the suburbs, but it's still really unsettling and really weird. And the problems now um, that we're facing are no longer, well, they are still similar to what we were facing back in the 80s, but now it's not as obvious. And now we're talking about things like underground cults or like, you know, whatever else happens in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you pick up on a really interesting point, which is that, I mean, horror in general is very compelling, I find, because it's really a way to explore other things going on in our lives, examine our humanity, the good and bad in that, examine what makes something monstrous, but through the lens of horror. I'm wondering, can you give me a little deep dive into one of the games in this anthology? It can be your favorite for any reason. I'm curious if you've, or uh, if or when you've playtested it, if there are any stories that come to mind that really stand out. (laughs) There are a few. So they're all very weird experiences. I feel like I'm really grateful working with Sadia on this just because it's like, 
like we're both just weird we're actually like both very weird game designers (laughs) and like the stuff that they've come up with is just like wow like this is really cool and really gross and really weird and like one of the games that they've they've written that we play tested was this game called it is hungry too and the cool thing about it is that it's a solo game so first of all we have a section for solo larps Uh, we also have a section for two player three player four player or more Uh, so they're broken down into those kinds of chapters uh, or sections and so it is hungry too. It is a um, it's basically this game where you're eating by yourself, but you're also feeding a monster, uh, oh. and you're like feeding this monster in the basement, and you have to like make sure that you give the monster a part of yourself. So what that looks like is it could be like a regular plate of food, but then you're feeding it like nail clippings or oh. a, a piece of your hair or something like that. Oh, I'm getting chills. <laughs> yeah, it's very creepy. And it's also available uh, in our free play kit. Because we hit 150 followers on uh, for our Kickstarter pre-launch, we've made that available through Sadia's Itch. Ooh, yeah. So uh, everyone go check that out. And then also, because I'm on your Kickstarter page right now, I'm just going to click this button. There, I followed uh, <laughs> the Kickstarter as well. That is a very chilling concept. There's something like eerie and yucky about feeding something parts of yourself. I mean, I suppose that's a very instinctual thing that most people would find unsettling. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is a very creepy game that you are also playing in the dark too. So it's No, like, I'm scared already. Yeah, it's very creepy. This entire anthology is just like full of weird games like that. Oh, man, this sounds I love sort of weird, surreal, twisted sort of games. I've I've said this multiple times, I think, on my podcast and elsewhere, but I really can't consume horror except through role playing games. So I'm very excited uh, to get my horror fix on. Is there anything I didn't ask you about suburban consumption that you want to make sure you share with listeners? Like, I, I loved like, learning about how the, the book is broken up. That was great to know. I would say, like, the beginning, we have this whole section on calibration tools uh, and setting expectations. So um, because all of this is, I, I joke about this sometimes, but technically they're tabletop games because you are playing at a table. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do have uh, calibration tools available that are specific to what we would normally think of as tabletop role-playing games. So, you know, if you have a session zero, that's definitely a thing. You definitely have lines and veils. You definitely have X cards and O cards available to you, depending on the game. So we have suggested for each game, we have suggested calibration tools, but at the very beginning, we also have like a whole list of calibration tools that you can use, um, you know, depending on your comfort level and depending on what you think is best for your players. That's a wonderful resource to have included in in anything, but especially in horror. Oh, yeah, definitely. And each of these have their own uh, content warnings and media touchstones as well. Oh, thanks for making sure folks can enjoy your games in a safe way, safe and enjoyable. So looping this back to Femmes Who Kickstart, the original uh, episode you were on, have you learned anything new about kickstarting, participating in or running a Kickstarter? Yeah, so (laughs) I have learned uh, quite a bit. I feel like I haven't had a time to just 
I haven't had the time to just like sit back and like think about all the stuff that I've learned. So this is very helpful. Um, <laughs> like I haven't had the time to like process everything. But I did learn that the following rate is really good, like the follow link. So making sure that everyone knows to follow your project before you go to launch uh, is awesome because that way uh, you are not guaranteed, but at least you'll know that there are going to be people checking out your page. Ideally, you want to have like a certain amount of followers so that way you can gauge like, oh, how many people are going to press back or uh, how many people are going to back at a specific level. And, you know, you can sort of like figure out like, oh, is this going to fund the first day or the second day or the third day? So having that as a way to sort of gauge like, you know, if this is going to fund is great. I would also say not being too worried about things and not hitting refresh over and over again is great because as long as you do the pre-work, so like, you know, setting up to make sure that you have your your FAQ ready and uh, making sure that you have updates, even before like, you know, the, the Kickstarter launches, having those updates pre-written out is great. I feel like where were you a week ago when I was obsessively refreshing my Kickstarter page? <laughs> I would just, or it refreshes automatically. So I would just kind of have it in a quarter of my screen so I could always see it. Definitely needed to kind of take a step back from that. It's funded now. So big yeah, relief, I, but congratulations, <laughs> by the way. It's amazing. Thank you. I think that I'm the, the episode sponsor for this episode, actually, through <laughs> the studio. So y'all will be hearing about that either before or after this interview, too. Yeah, I definitely back that. I was like, oh, I want all those tarot cards. You. Thank the you so much. The art looks so good. Thank you. Oh, my goodness gracious. We have been chatting for 30 minutes. Speaking of things flying by and time having no meaning. As we wrap this up, was there anything else you wanted to say? And if not, let folks know where they can find you. You can check out the Kickstarter for Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous. Uh, That should be coming up in October. So that's very soon. And it's going to be a 30-day Kickstarter. And you can find me at Banana Chan Games on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I now have a TikTok. That's been Ooh, the clock app. Yeah, exactly. It's very, I don't know. It's its not what I'm used to, but it is very interesting. I'm in that place as well. I'm trying to get the algorithm to realize what TikToks I like. Um, yeah. So it's less terrifying when I open it and I'm like assaulted by all this sound. Yeah, yeah. Like it's very overwhelming. Like a lot of this content is just like, whoa, so much stuff. Yeah, but I feel like for the generation it was created for, they're so used to being bombarded by media constantly. I wonder if it's less jarring. I don't know. This this is making me feel old now. (laughs) Same. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous does launch in October, but you should go find it on Kickstarter now and hit that follow button. Banana, thank you so much for coming on to Behold Her again. It's always lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Banana, Rachel, and Teresa for sharing your stories with Behold Her and making the second to last episode truly special. Rudy, thank you, as always, for your editing prowess. I hope you, dear listener, listen in to the Behold Her's big finale. I have some special things planned for December. I'll see you then.